0: I felt felt being with you and I felt your presence. So here in Zephaniah, I got to be honest, I've never studied Zephaniah. I've read through it. I've read it many times, but I've never studied it. I've never preached it. I've never taught it, um, to my recollection anyway, which is getting fuzzier by the day. But uh, it's been such a blessing to be here. So Zephaniah, we're looking obviously at the end of this very short minor prophet. He's the last of the minor prophets written before the exile, the last of the minor prophets written before before Judah, the southern tribe is exiled by Babylon to Babylon. The next uh, of the minor prophets are written, this is a direct quote, from the perspective that the people are back in the land. So he is the last of the minor prophets written before exile. Um, a bit more context, before this, previous to this, the 10 northern tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel had been destroyed by Assyria, pre- previous to Zephaniah. Uh, only the southern tribe of Judah, with, its ca- with Jerusalem as its capital, the King city, Uh, the city with the temple, remained. So Zephaniah was preaching uh, and writing about, give or take, 620 BC, 620 BC, during the reign of the reforming king, Josiah, who reigned for quite a long time, about 30 years. Um, But syncretism, so Josiah was a reforming king in a good sense. He brought the people back to Israel. He destroyed idols. But syncretism or mixed worship of God plus other gods still remained in the land. And so that's where you see the passage that Chase read, is all, it's all blessing, but previous, I'm going to give you more of a context of the whole book since we're just in the end. Um, previous to this, everything previous to this passage basically is judgment. It's judgment on Israel for her wickedness and on the nations. So um, in less than 40 years, Babylon would raise or, or take to the ground or destroy, R-A-Z-E, would raise Jerusalem to the ground and deport its inhabitants. And so Zephaniah, by you know, zooming out the whole, the whole prophet, not just the text that Chase read, speaks quite a bit to the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is a day of God's judgment where he cleans house. He gets rid of evil, and um, he brings his own to himself. And, and here what we see is um, we see that there are partial fulfillments of the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. It's coming. The, day of, the final day of judgment is coming one day. Christ is going to come again. He's going to return, and he's going to, bring, he's going to bring judgment on all that are opposed to him. And he's going to bring his own to himself. But in Zephaniah 1, 7, and then 14, he mentions it twice, um, Zephaniah is prophesying to the southern tribe of Judah, to the Israelites that are left, about the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of Judah to Babylon. And this is going to be a partial fulfillment, this, this destruction of Jerusalem and this deportation of God's people. A few years after, about, about 40 years after is preaching and writing, this is going to be a partial fulfillment. It's going to be a taste of the day of the Lord. And so there are partial fulfillments of that throughout history. Um, but if you look, and you don't have to look there, but if you look at the beginning of Zephaniah, again, Chase read the end, and that's our text for this morning. Um, but the, open, um, the opening of the book is language. It's creational language, but it's really like decreational language. It's language where God is He's using all these, these phrases from Genesis, and He's saying, I am going to wipe the slate clean, I am going to destroy every, everything opposed to me, and I'm going to make a new creation. And that is it's massive judgment day language. And it and it's not just local to Israel. It's 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 cosmic in scale. It's cosmic in scale. Um, and so the the open, the beginning and the end of the book, positions in books, in ancient books were even more important than they are today. They're still important. How does a book begin? How does it end? But in, in, uh, in the ancient world, and certainly here in Zephaniah, the beginning and the end of the, of the book tell you a great deal about what the book is about, about what God is saying to his people. And so the book starts with this devastating language. It's, it's really kind of Noahic in its, so it, in other words, it, it kind of makes you, it makes you think when you read it of Noah and the flood, where God says, I'm going to utterly wipe away all of creation and basically start over. But then at the end of the book, we have this incredible, so that's the beginning, the end of Zephaniah, this short three-chapter prophet, is this amazing language about full restoration for God's people. And so basically in this book, you almost have a complete Bible. It's like a micro Bible, where you have this um, I'm going to re I'm going to redo this creational language I'm going to redo creation completely but then at the end he's saying I have this hope that's never going to end for my people I'm going to do something completely new and so really Zephaniah is this small three chapter minor prophet written before the exile the last one written before the exile and it sort of compresses the whole timeline of history into these three chapters um so included in in this day of the Lord, as I said, is that all nations and Israel deserve utter destruction, and that includes us, right? That includes, ev- honestly, every single person on the face of the earth. We deserve God's judgment. We, deserve, we can't stand in the day of judgment. We deserve, because of our sin and rebellion and our wicked hearts, to be done away with. Um, so one of the big questions of the book was, how can God then end the book in the way that he does, but with all these amazing promises and this tenderness toward his people, right? with this restored, this saved and this restored Israel. And then it's opened up to all nations. And then this restored, complete creation, right? Like I said, there's some of the most tender language in the Bible of God to his people here. It says God will sing over you. Just jumping right into the text. God will sing over you. Um, he, will be, he will quiet you with his love. He will sing loudly over you. That's in Zephaniah 3, verse 17. Um, we actually, I actually painted a picture uh, that I copied of a, of a bird singing over a little birdie. Uh, sitting on a moon with this verse. In the, it's in Susanna's, it's my, my nine-year-old daughter. It's in, her, it's in her room. And Robin just told me last night, she has the same, she, had, she grew up with the same verse on a poster in her room. It's like, are you kidding me? That's so cool. Um, but this is the kind of thing you put on a poster and put in your kids' rooms. This isn't like, day of the Lord, I'm gonna destroy everything. This is the polar opposite of that. This is God will quiet you with his love. It's the tender, le- it's maternal language. It's, it's a picture of like a mother with her, with her little baby. Caring for her baby as her baby coos, singing lullabies over her child. Um, so it says that he's going to sing over us like a mother sings over a child. He will be in your midst, verse seventeen. He'll be among you. He'll be with you for good. And then in verse nineteen, look at verse nineteen. It says that he will. It says that he will uh, touch the untouchable. He'll heal the lame. He'll bring in the outcast. He's going to be a god who does away with evil but who is so tender with his own and who bring, who looks for those that are hurting and on the edges and brings them into his fold, brings them under the shadow of his wing, brings them into the pinion, the soft part of his feather, underneath his, as a shield and as a sun, as a protection. Um, and, and and of course our question is, how can God be this severe and, and, and oppose all those who are... Uh, do do away excuse me with all those who are opposed to him because he is a god who will not give up on his con- on his creation and who will not let evil ultimately win and contaminate his creation but what that means is that's bad news for us because we contaminate his creation we rebelled against him but then how can he do that and then end with this kind of tender all-inclusive language and of course the answer the answer is jesus jesus incarnates these words jesus infleshes these words look at his ministry look at his life who who, um, who better, I mean, he perfectly fulfills verse 19, for instance. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. That is a tiny snapshot of Jesus's entire ministry. Uh, he was so tender with those who were outcasts, who were notorious sinners, who knew that they were sinners, who knew that they needed a savior, the untouchables, the fact that, does anyone know what the first thing Jesus does? After the Sermon on the Mount, the famous sermon that he preaches on Matthew 5 through 7, where after he gets done, it's like who can hide from who can hide from a God who sees straight to the heart and, and you know he says, Oh, if, if you haven't committed adultery, if you've lusted, you're guilty of adultery. Oh, if you haven't committed murder, hang on, if you've hated anyone from your heart, the germ of of murder is in your heart. God cares about your heart. Your righteousness has to exceed it's this amazing sermon that shows us that the righteousness that is required to be with God, we can't provide it. It has to be provided by God if it's going to happen. And then the first thing that he does when he, on, in Matthew 8, right after he finishes the sermon, you know the first thing that happens? The first encounter that he has is with a leper who's untouchable. Nobody would get around him, and he come, the leper comes right up to Jesus, and Jesus touches the leper, and he heals him. Jesus is the... He is... Implacably opposed to sin and evil, but he also brings all comers to himself with tenderness and with full forgiveness. He fully uh, embraces not only this passage, but this entire book. This whole thing pushes us to him. Look at Jesus, not just in his life, but in his death, right? Um, if, you, if you turn just a little bit before the passage that Chase read in, in Zephaniah uh, 3 6 and 7, it says, God says, I have cut off all the nations. excuse me, I've cut off the nations, their battlements are in ruins, I've laid waste their streets, and on he goes. Um, Jesus was cut off as the representative for humanity, a new representative. He was cut off and endured all of the judgment that all of humanity deserved and that all creation had been tainted with because of our rebellion. He was cut off so that we might be brought in. Um, with, the, uh, with the favor that he deserved. He took our punishment and he gives us his favor. So he was cast off to bring us in. On the cross, he speaks, what, Psalm 22, 1 from his lips. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken or abandoned me? He, who, he was the only one who didn't deserve to be abandoned. He, w- he had perfect access to the Father and he chose to be abandoned, abandoned in our place so that that punishment could be meted out that we deserve on him. And he and he brings through faith in him. He brings us right into the heart of a God who sings tenderly over us and forgives us. Um, one of the things I wanted to do is just take you just take you right to Jesus in this text. And we'll 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 uh, zoom out to, to application um, toward the end here. Um, Jesus took. What what Israel and every nation and every person deserves and offers us what he deserves. As I just said, what he has earned, not as God, but as man, as the God-man, as our representative. And he is, of course, God, but he is also fully man, which is why it was so important for him to be born truly of a woman, of a virgin, while having God as his father. Um, Verse 11, closer to our text that Chase read, on that day you will not be put to shame. He's talking to his people and to all nations who come to him right? On that day, you will not be put to shame. How not? How, for a people who have only lived in such a way where we deserve God's condemnation, how can we not be put to shame? This really reaches all the way back to Eden. As I said, Zephaniah is kind of like this tiny three-chapter prophet that sort of encompasses the whole Bible. When, when, when he mentions that we, we sinners won't be put to shame, in Genesis 3, when you go back to Adam and Eve and, and their rebellion against God and their, their um, disobedience at the tree, What's the first thing that happens to them at the tree? After they eat of the fruit, both the wife, both Eve and her husband, uh, the first thing they do is they start hiding. They start covering, trying to cover themselves. They start pushing away from each other. They start hiding from one another, and they certainly hide from God. What they're doing is they're trying to cover their shame. Shame is the shadow, it's the indivisible shadow of sin. It comes with sin it come shame shame came in over humanity over every single one of us who came from adam and eve who were born from adam and eve shame comes in with sin and we're born in sin and so shame is something we as sinners are well familiar with um but um but the promise here is that god is going to take away our shame which is to say that he is going to take away our sin and all that divides us all that separates us from god and he is. It's, it's said elsewhere in Scripture that he's the lifter of our heads, uh, Psalm 3.3. 3. And how was he able to do this? Because he became, 2 Corinthians 5.21, a verse that a lot of us are familiar with, he became our sin on that cross. He was utterly, he wasn't, he wasn't just um, enduring the wrath of God for us. He was being shamed, stripped naked, beaten, pinned to a tree, everyone thinking, most people on earth thinking you deserve what you're getting. shamed for us. Enduring, becoming that sin, taking that shame that follows, that comes along with the sins that we commit onto himself. So that he could truly say, centuries before he, he came to fulfill this, I'm going to take away your shame. I'm going to take away your shame. Um, he was put to shame by becoming our sin, as I said. Um, verse 15 in our text, the Lord has taken away judgments against you. He's cleared your enemies. Again, how? Israel deserved to be judged. How can God do this? Um, And we do too. We deserve judgment. You know, Romans, Romans 3, no one is righteous, not one, quoting from the Old Testament. Our throats are an open grave. The poison of asps is under our lips. Our corrupt words come from corrupt hearts, hearts that are poisoned, dead, and utterly opposed to God until we return to him in faith um so how can we then be cleared and the key is in zephaniah 3 9 which is the pivot of the book everything before this verse is judgment like i've been saying everything before zephaniah 3 9 is god saying i'm going to judge all creation i'm going to judge all the nations and i'm going to judge my people israel because they have abandoned me as their lover as their god as their creator as as their maker and savior um they've abandoned me um So everything before this verse is judgment on Israel, on the nations, and on creation. But everything after Zephaniah 3.9 is blessing. So this is the pivot. This is the pivot of the book. And and not just blessing for Israel, but complete creational restoration. Um, And this is actually the way that the prophets are shaped. All the prophets are shaped with judgment first, which we all deserve. And then they always end with salvation, pointing us to the one who's going to come save us. And sometimes some of the short prophets will literally, there'll be like a chapter and it'll be one verse that's salvation. It's like, it's like doomsday the whole time, but then it finishes with, but I'm going to come and I'm going to save you. And that pushes us toward this Messiah, toward the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. Um, the opening line of this pivot in Zephaniah 3:9 reads, for at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. And again, what's that saying? It's talking about the fact that Jesus made abundant and clear in his ministry. How is God going to change the speech of his people to a pure speech? And what does that mean? If our words are pure, what does that mean? Where do words come from? They come from the heart. What he's saying is I'm going to do something. You can maybe try to change the way that you talk. What you can't do is change your heart. And saying that I'm going to change their, their words to pure words is saying I'm going to change the source of those words. Our, all of our words come from our hearts. And God sees our hearts. And our hearts are corrupt. We're born into corruption, but God is saying there's going to come a day when I am going to give pure hearts. And we actually read that in our, um, in our um, Conf- assurance of pardon, confession of sin and assurance of pardon this morning from Ezekiel. Jeremiah and Ezekiel, two of the major prophets, both prophesy that God, in, when Christ comes, he's going to give us new hearts. And indeed, that's exactly what he does. Christ takes his sin, our sin upon himself, and he gives us his very record in his very heart, in his very disposition. With his father. Um, So here's, uh, actually, I'm going to skip that. Um, Because he took our place as an enemy of God and took the punishment we deserve, Jesus gives us the favor he deserves. Look at verse 19. We've looked at it already, but verse 19 of Zephaniah 3. When Jesus came on the scene healing lepers, as I said, eating with notorious sinners, welcoming traitors to God's people, the tax collectors and sex workers into fellowship with him, he was fulfilling these words. He was showing the time had come for these words to come true. And again, what did it mean? What did it mean? It meant that the day of the Lord and the all terrible just judgment that would be involved was poured out on Jesus instead of on us. He came between us and a just God and as our shield absorbed the blow, absorbed the impact that we deserve. He took the wrath and gave us his favor in his life, but poignantly and perfectly in his death. He absorbed the cosmic destruction spoken of in Zephaniah 1. Um, and when I, when I think about that darkness that's talked about, it makes me think of the Exodus. The Exodus where God delivers his people. And there's a reason that one of the last plagues of the Exodus, before the Exodus, happened. Before he brought his, his, his sinful, rebellious people out where he saved them through no good of their own with a mighty hand. It's a, it's a plague of total darkness. And it's, and it's clear when you look into it that it wasn't just, hey, I can't see anything. It was, There was a spiritual um, and a physical darkness where we're, there's complete, there was complete, and like an undoing of creation. The first thing, when, when God spoke in Genesis 1-3, the first thing that he speaks, the first thing that happens into creation is what? Light. God is light, and when he speaks, he brings light. And so what's happening in the Exodus before he delivers his people is this judgment when, create, when God, as it were, removes himself from creation, what happens is darkness comes in. Spiritual darkness, physical darkness, and, and we are completely lost. Um, and that happens at the greater exodus, the greater deliverance that the Egypt exodus points to on the cross. On the cross. Where there's a darkness that's very similar but even, but even more intense that envelops the land. And it's because the maker of all things is literally enduring the wrath of God in our place. He's literally being undone. He who did and made and spoke all things and upholds them by the word of his power is being undone for us as our fall guy, for what we deserve. Um, the cosmos was crying. It was being undone because its maker was being undone by our sin. So this amazing Herculean salvation that God brings through this prophesied Messiah, through the one who was born of a virgin who came to save us 2,000 years ago. Who would would have thought that God would fulfill it as he did? If you look at verse 17, what does it say? This to me is the highlight verse in our passage. It says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. The Lord your God is in your midst. So the very God that we should be fleeing from because we can't stand before him, because He's going to destroy, do away with all evil and sin. We ought to be running from him because we are sinners. But it says, no, in that day, through the one that he's going to send, through the prophesied Messiah, who ends up being his very son, he's going to come right in the middle of us. And he's going to sing over us. And he's going to uh, quiet us tenderly with his love. It says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. That word in the Hebrew, it literally means the same thing. But it's the word gabor, which is used for a warrior it's it other translation says the hero the lord god is in your midst a hero who will save and just looking at this turn from like i'm going to utterly redo creation and do away with all darkness sin and evil and judge every man woman child on the face of the planet to like i'm going to quiet you with my love and i'm going to restore creation completely i'm going to be with my people forever and then in verse 17 it says he's the mighty one is going to do this our thoughts are like Wow, when you come, it's going to be astonishing. It's going to be so obvious. It's going to be overwhelming. We're all going to be on our faces. But who would have thought, who would have thought that the way that God was going to do this in our midst to save us, to to lift off sin and evil from us was to be lifted up voluntarily on a cross, on an instrument of shame and torture, uh, to become our sin. To lift off God's judgment from us and to put it on himself and to bring us to himself tenderly. Who would have thought that would be the ultimate display of his power? Was it a, was a display of apparent weakness. But yet, yeah, this is how God fulfills this word uh, in Christ, in his life, and in his death for us, bearing, bearing our shame. Um, the Creator Himself. If you go back just one verse. From that verse, from Zephaniah 3.17, verse 16 says, On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. And then that promise, I'm going to be in your midst, I'm going to save you with a mighty hand. The mighty one. Who would have thought it would have been? I mean, all his disciples that he had told he was going to do, he's, hey, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to the cross, I've got to be crucified, everyone's going to turn against me. The, it's so contrary to the way that we think God's going to save that even they thought it's over. It's finished. We lose. And yet right there, he was displaying his greatest act of power. What does verse 16 say? It says, let not your hands grow weak, the ones that he's giving these promises to. Just amazing that the way that he would fulfill these promises to us by coming into our midst and by defeating evil, by being lifted up on a cross for us and becoming our sin, would be to take his very hands and allow them to become weak, as it were, and nailed to a cross. This is our salvation. This is the hope of the world. This is the reason that we congregate on Christmas and at any other time. Because so humble in his power to save is our God. So great is his love for us that he was willing to save us in that way by taking our place. Um, So what's happening here as we zoom back out from the book, um, Jesus is pushing back. This day of the Lord, this day of judgment that's coming, and by the way, the day of the Lord, the day of complete reckoning, there have been partial reckonings throughout history. The exile of God's people was one. We'll return to this in a second. Rome in 70 AD was another one, and there are various sort of days of the Lord where there is judgment and there is wrath, but the ultimate day is coming where God will actually completely do away with sin and evil, and he will bring his own to himself. All those who hide in him by faith, by trusting in Jesus Christ who was lifted up on a cross for us and took what we deserved. Um, but Jesus, in absorbing, he basically absorbed that day of the Lord into himself on that cross. But he, he didn't do away with it. He pushed it away. The next time, he came the first time in weakness to be our fall guy, to absorb the day of the Lord. The second time he comes, he is going to bring, he is going to be the one who executes, it's going, he is the Lord. He's going to execute vengeance against all of those who oppose and hate God. So the only sa- so he's giving us a time period between his first and second coming to run to him and to call to others. There is a safe place and it's in Jesus, and there is going to come a full restoration, and it's only going to be through Jesus Christ. This is the Christmas message. This isn't actually a proper Advent text, and it's a strange Christmas passage. But in the, there's a sense in which it's perfectly appropriate. It's perfectly appropriate. Um. So, and and all those who are who are jesus's by faith will reign with him over the nations that's how the book finishes in verses 19c through verse 20 we will reign with him not only over the nations but over a renewed creation that's where we're headed that's where those who are in christ are headed Um, fortunes will be restored and the entire world will praise god's people Um, so what does this mean let me just repeat a few things and then move to some application and, and then be done what does this mean let's get practical okay um, so a couple things. This is so much more than a promise of return from exile. If you just look at the immediate context, again, Zephaniah is preaching 40 years before Judah will be exiled. Jerusalem will be destroyed and Judah will be exiled to Babylon. And and for many, they were like, it's all, it's all over. All they had was the promises that God was going to restore his people. This this it, Their return from exile 70 years later was only a partial fulfillment of this huge promise which says, I'm going to completely restore all creation and you, my people. So that was a partial. It's, the, ex, the return from exile, was just, it didn't fulfill this. It was just a drop in the bucket. The overthrow of Rome, now returning to that, as I said, the overthrow of Rome, um, when Jesus came uh, to earth and was born and, 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 and grew up and about 30 years of age started his ministry, and people were like, hey, you're the Messiah. And indeed he was, but not the kind of Messiah they thought. They expect, most, almost everyone expected for him to throw off the Roman yoke, to throw off that, the things that bother us that make our lives really difficult, like I need more money in my bank account, I need geopolitical freedom, I need, you know, I need just for life to be easier, God. I mean, um, so almost everyone expected Jesus to overthrow the oppressors of Israel, of the Jews. He, he wasn't interested in that, though. Um, his objective was a much, much overthrowing a much bigger oppressor, as we've talked about, right? The way that he fulfilled these things was he did a, he did a juke on, on people. They went to shake his hand. Hey, you're going you're gonna to throw off Rome, right? And then he went and punched, he punched us all in the stomach. We didn't expect him to die. We certainly didn't expect that what the enemy he was going after was the enemy that actually takes us down, which is our own selfishness, our own sin and pride and arrogance, our own shaking our fist at God and going our own way, my own putting myself on the throne of my life. Sin, which leads to death, which leads to eternal death and separation from God, and punishment by him would justly deserve. Jesus took that upon himself, a so much greater enemy than Rome. But at the time, it just seemed like, what are you doing? And yet, this is exactly what God did in, uh, in coming into our midst in a mighty way. Um, so, a couple bits of application, and then I'll, and then I'll close. Um, in a world of, of war... Poverty, heartache, fear, and pain, which we are very much in, and which, if we were over in Ukraine or Israel or some of the surrounding Arab nations or down in Venezuela or Cuba or Haiti or so many other parts of the world, we would feel this even more, right? Places where the church is growing by leaps and bounds. We're kind of just like slowly dying here, right? But, and this will be an encouragement in a few minutes, as the church is more and more embattled, here, it will grow. It, its light will shine and it will grow more and more. That's what happens. So in a world of war, poverty, heartache, fear, and pain, one of the messages of Zephaniah this Christmas to us and always is that he has vanquished our greatest enemy. So when, when I think of my oppressors, when you think of your oppressors, again, what do you think of? Like Israel, I think we, think, we tend to think, I tend to think of external threats that I want deliverance from. I, I rattled off a few of them, but here's some more a low bank account, pain the cessation of war and threats of war, a stable economy, secure borders, trustworthy government representatives. When was the last time we had those? More money in my kid's college fund, like a lot more. I need a lot more. Enough money to pay my property taxes and to go on, maybe I'm going on a vacation this summer, you know? Like, I would like that, please, Lord. Give me these. Deliver me from these things, Lord. Jesus says, I'm putting words in his mouth, maybe, but I'm not a genie. I'm God. Your money won't save you in the day of judgment, Zephaniah 118, but I can, which is why I've come to deal with far greater things that oppress you, your opposition to God and his rule in your life, your self-centeredness, your lust, your pride, your anger, almost constant fear and anxiety, a need to control, a need for others to think well of you, and we could go on. There's addiction to porn, there's alcoholism, there's idolatry of my job, of my image, of money, of comfort, convenience, and pleasure. Jesus came to save us from these things that are destroying us, not just us, those around us. And that is the message that we have. He has taken these things into himself, crucified them and buried them and risen to a new life that he invites us to. And we are headed somewhere good, regardless of what, um, what is happening around us. And the second thing um, that I wanna say, and then I close is that the church the church, just to talk about the church in the world, um the church in the world you know I, I talk about just as i mentioned earlier um all, if you if you read church history if you look at the book of acts if you look at the old testament um if you again if you look at the church for the past 2000 years and you look at the world seen today the church is is always growing on the edges where it's persecuted on the edges of power anywhere where it's not being persecuted is where it's not growing and so i know that there's a sense in a sense in which um we can, be, we can be super downcast and bummed because we see America just kind of pushing itself away from the living God and shunning the church and shunning Jesus Christ and shunning the true faith um, and just doing, and just it seems like we live ever more in a more and more and more evil environment. But actually, uh, that even more was, was the environment that the New Testament was written in, where the church thrived and grew. Yes, where she was persecuted but where she grew. And so as that continues to happen, and as we, as we stand on God's word and cling to Christ in faith and have this amazing hope, the fact that he's borne the wrath of God for us and that he's risen and he's reigning and he's working all things for our good and that we're headed somewhere good to complete restoration. The restoration has started. He's continuing it through our faith. He's inviting others into that restoration and we are headed to our totally renewed creation where he will be literally physically in our midst as the king of kings ruling and reigning forever. He is that now from heaven, but he will return and he will finish what he started one day. Um this is a huge in our culture, a huge opportunity opportunity, excuse me, for the church to wax, for the church to grow, because she always has thrived away from the centers of power and where she's been persecuted. And let us be and it's a huge impetus for us to be praying for our brothers and sisters around the world as, as the tumult um as the tumult happens. So so as I close um this this little prophet that I've never studied before, never preached before, but really benefited from, I really enjoyed being in this week. Um, let me just encourage you with some final comments um, about this world scene, about where we're headed. He's making all things new. This verse at the end, at that time, I will bring you in. At that time, I will gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. We worship a God of complete restoration. He will not rest until it's completely finished. That, uh, he began that work, uh, the decisive work on the cross, and, it, and, and that work was shown to be a true work uh, through his resurrection. He's reigning now, and, and everything, everything in creation has to pass through his nail-scarred hands. He uses especially sin and evil to build his church and to build his kingdom. Um, and so he's making all things new. He will finish this work of total restoration. Um, but it will look like, through us, it will look like the econo- what I call the economy of the cross. It will look like dying. It will look like weakness. It will look like suffering. And let us not run from that. But run toward that, not only in our lives, but in the lives of others, because that is where, that is, the, that, is the, that is the material that God uses through the cross of his son, Jesus Christ, to bring resurrection and to build his kingdom. And so we have, we have a hope that isn't just like, hey, two weeks off and some Christmas, and some Christmas food and singing, singing a few carols. Or like this, um, just yesterday I was with some friends and I heard like, tis the season. And what they meant by that wasn't even, it certainly wasn't, tis the season to worship, worship uh, the incarnate God. It's, and it, even, it wasn't even like, tis the season to be generous or marry or be with friends. It was like, tis the season to drink. Literally, their hope is just all they're doing day after day for these next couple weeks is just drinking alcohol and partying. Because literally, they don't have a hope beyond this life. We have a hope that passes the boundaries of this world that came into this world, entered our darkness, and that gets in into the very heart of our sin and evil and and begins a re- a restoration that is thorough and that will that will not that will, God won't give up on until until we're complete and we're like him and we're with him face to face and that's what we get to invite people into and that's why he came down into our darkness that's what the angels had to announce um. On that Christmas night over 2,000 years ago. Um, so this is how the world scene is going to change. It's through Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and that's how we're going to change. We're we constantly running after other things, um, but like Augustine said on page one of his confessions, oh Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Especially this Christmas season, you just see folks running after like one more gift, or a little bit of time off, or the next drink of alcohol, or just some merrymaking over here. It's like Jesus jesus is the one that has made us for himself and we're not going to rest until we rest in him uh, and he is the one that sings over us and that brings us to himself and that offers himself which is full restoration um because he took the wrath of god we deserve and offers the full blessing of god um he's the one that we find this t- tender language um offered and manifest in and i'll just finish in his come because i like calvin um, he, uh, he talks in his commentary on this passage just about how, he's like, there's a sense in which nothing is more alien to God than like a mother, language of a mother singing over little ones. Like it's so tender and God's so mighty and magnificent. And, and he's like, man, he goes to the farthest lengths to assure us of his love because we in our sin and rebellion do, and because of Satan's attacks, who wants us to do anything but to receive the love of God that he has for us in Jesus Christ. Who wants us to run after anything else right he says he um he uses such almost arrestingly tender language to get through to us the fact that he has done everything necessary to take care of the things that truly threaten us and to bring us to himself and he's done it in jesus christ and so let us continue to worship um, the god who was crucified for us and the god who came to earth to be born of a virgin, to become what he was not, human, to represent us in his life and his death and his resurrection, and who is with us, who is even now in our midst, and who will one day physically return and finish the work of making all things new. Um, let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word from Zephaniah. Thank you for uh, the fact that your word is perfect. This amazing prophet who wrote about forty years before things got so dark for your people that they a lot of them probably thought, How can any good come from this? And we may be here, whether in our own lives, because of the pain we're experiencing, loneliness, financial troubles, whatever it is, or because of the world scene, we may be in a similar place. But I thank you for this word of hope this morning that full restoration is coming, and it's coming because of what because you came and entered space and time in the fullness of time two thousand years ago, Jesus to be born of a virgin and to, to live a quiet life for about 30 years and then one day to step on the scene and to, to bring in the outcast, to touch the leper, to forgive um, the notorious sinner. And your arms are open wide for anyone to come to you. And we're not going to find rest and peace and full restoration until we do come to you. So I pray that we would. I pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't, hasn't done that yet, if we're, if, if we're looking to other things, that we would stop that right now. And we would come to you knowing that you came to rescue us that you that you are the one that the only one that can save us and the only one that can satisfy the cry of our our hearts and our deepest needs um thank you jesus thank you father for loving us so much for sending your son thank you holy spirit we pray all these things in your name amen well friends we always